Clancy Pasta presents, My neighborhood watchman always told me something lived behind my door. I found out what it was. Written by Potato on Puberty. When I was a child, I lived in a small neighborhood in the heart of a bustling metropolis, in one of the most populous countries in the world. It was the era before smartphones, flat screens, and social media. The internet was in its infancy, a tool for those in the know instead of a commonplace necessity. There were no massive franchise outlets popping up in every available square foot of pavement space, and restaurant leaflets printed on cheap yellow paper was still something to look forward to when checking the post box at the end of the day. I say this not to decry what we have now. I am very much a member of the modern era, and I don't glorify not being able to look up what I want when I want to. I simply say this to carve out an image of what the days were like when I lived through this story. Because you see, I believe that the only reason more people didn't know about this was because they had no way to. There is nary a traveler faster than rumor, but rumor itself cannot board a ferry and cross the oceans, nor can it rack up the money to print out warnings and ship it to the billions who needed to hear it. Not until the net came about could that truly be possible. And it is for that reason that I pen this today, with the intent of reaching out to as many people as I can, just as Bahari had once intended. Bahari was our neighborhood guard. He was an amicable man, tall and dusky with a heavy voice and a pair of trousers that looked like they'd seen battlefields more than wash basins. He had a ready wit about him, and the children in my complex loved listening to the stories he told us about his village down east by the river, where they caught fish in nylon nets and cooked curry with bitter gourd grown in their own backyard. Sometimes his fondness for food would slip into the stories, and the children would groan, impatient. He would laugh wholeheartedly and talk about how his wife could cook the most amazing potato curry with cumin seeds and onions, and how if she was here, she'd yell at them for not appreciating her cookery more. What he considered most precious, however, was his daughter. He would proudly show around the little black and white photo of her that he would carry around in his wallet. He would take a new one every year, so for someone like me who would talk to him often, it was like watching her grow up before your own eyes. He would rant about how she had inherited her mother's cleverness and her father's good looks, and how she would tease him saying she preferred his nephews and her mother's company to his drab stories. Listening to Bahari every day, however, was a privilege afforded to only a select few, for despite being a guard, he never stood behind a door or sat at a table in the garage of a still, silent apartment complex to keep wanton miscreants at bay. He patrolled the neighborhood at night from 11 to 7 in the morning and slept in the afternoon atop a straw bed he'd made himself laid under the shade of the tree in front of our house. During monsoons, when the rain would break through the canopy and cover the tarred streets in a muddy torrent, he would calmly sleep on the roof of our building with a tarpaulin sheet pulled tight above him, tied to the corner of the roof with twine he'd gotten from the sweatshop nearby. Therefore, it wasn't particularly easy to get a hold of him, and it was only through sheer luck that I'd often run into him getting ready to sleep outside or up on the roof. That was when he'd started telling me his stories. He'd speak of the children in his village, playing in make-believe with carrots tied to the sides of their heads to look like horns, of how when the storms ravaged the riverside, they'd often have crocodiles coming on shore, trudging a mere feet from their bedrooms, 
of wizened men shutting their doors and lighting candles at their thresholds on the most auspicious days of the month. My favorite stories were the ones he told of their local legends, the half-man, half-tiger demon that haunted the river banks after the witching hour, the two-headed stranger that only came out on the third full moon of the year, thirsting for the blood of human children and newborn calves, the medicine man who would step out from the ashes of a bonfire in the ruins of the old school on the east shore, and most importantly, of the doorman. While all his stories would delight and enthrall, the tales of the doorman would stand out to me. They were the kind you dream of when you sat in the dark, awake and aware late at night, listening to every scratch and jolt and squeak ringing out in the slate-black shadows, and imagining the unseen machinations behind them. The doorman always seemed more than just a story when I heard Bahari talk of him, somehow more rooted in reality and in the terrors of the mundane, more than the other fiendishly horrifying specters he would tell us about. The doorman isn't a human, he'd say, neatly folding a betel nut leaf in half and sealing it with sweet syrup. No one knows what he is. He's not of this world or any world that you or me or our ancestors have any knowledge of. He lives in the shadow behind the door, the shadow it casts when it opens completely against a wall, and he's lived there forever. Which door? I'd whisper, trembling as the evening skies turn darker and darker, and the rains beat against the tarpaulin above his straw bed. Every door. If it's a door that leads into a room, the doorman has lived in the shadows behind it. Perhaps he still lives there. He isn't of this world, and there are no worldly laws to tether him to our way of life. He is everywhere at once, and he is nowhere. He will come out during great misfortune. When the night is at its darkest, the lamp is burning at its lowest, and the shadows it casts are at their longest. At that moment, if you are awake, you'll hear a scratch at the first door to your house. If you tiptoe quietly to the room it opens up into, you'll notice the air around you getting heavier, like it does hours before a massive summer thunderstorm. With the sweat trickling down from your brow, you will see the faintest hint of something dart in from under the door. A shadow in the shape of a seven-toed foot, thinner than paper, slowly taking form like a cloud of black steam being frozen in place. Then, as you're rooted in place, you'd see the rest of him, coming through the door, charring it from the center outwards. What does he look like? I'd ask as thunder rang out behind me like nothing you could comprehend. It'd be like looking upon something vast and unstoppable and describing it with nothing save words later. You can hear them on the radio talking about a 60-foot tidal wave or a million-kilometer forest fire, and you could convince yourself you've grasped the sense of their magnitude, of their terror. You would tell yourself that this is as big as a building or as wide as 10 cricket stadiums, but you will only truly understand the scale of terror they inspire if you see them. There is no yardstick, no measuring tape to convey what horror he'll bring into your life. All that is certain is after he's done, he'll never find you. You will be alive only as a story, a cautionary tale of no real value since there is little you can do to thwart him. Isn't there any way to stop him? Not in this day and age. There will be those who believe prayer will stave him off. 
I say that's not true. To say that he is rendered impotent by anything we may do is wishful thinking, and an all-too-human way of convincing yourself you're safe. Bahari would pop the betel leaf into his mouth and look into the dark clouds, savoring the sickly sweet flavor as the world around him rang with rain and thunder and howling winds, his blue tarpaulin flapping madly against its restraints, an old tattered bedsheet covered in black polythene bags covering his frame. He never seemed to mind the elements, their fury and splendor. He said they reminded him of home, of when the storm would force him and his wife to keep watch at their doorstep to deter crocodiles from coming in too close to their daughter's bed. As I came into adolescence, my interest in the macabre grew, becoming a full-time hobby. Bahari never stopped telling stories, but I had less and less time to listen to them. I still sat and heard him talk any time I could, however. But on most days, I'd come back from school, finish off work, preparing for the college entrances, and plop down on the bed to read horror stories. The gothic, incomprehensible terror of those tales would lull me into a fitful sleep, sometimes broken by sordid nightmares of whatever abomination I'd read about that night. And sometimes in those dreams, lurking at the back of whatever ludicrous world I had conjured up, there would be something tall and black standing just out of focus, and if I tried too hard to see what he looked like, I would be jolted awake. In the summer of my first year in college, Bahari suddenly stopped coming to our neighborhood. There was no warning, no news of his departure. He just up and left, put in notice at the ramshackle securities office down the street, and he took his straw bed and blue tarpaulin with him. One day he was there, raring to talk, the next, he was gone. I asked around in my neighbors and at the local tea stalls, and no one seemed to know why he had left. Apparently, he had taken the early morning train to his village and set off midway through his shift. The only one who'd seen him was the porter at the station, who was also a regular at the tea stall. He looks scared, sir. I've seen this man coming and going for a decade, and I've only ever seen him smiling. It was strange. I felt odd listening to that. I was certain that there was some tangible reason, some concrete rationality behind his sudden departure. I was worried for him, and more than a little angry. Bahari was a part of my childhood, and I shared several memories with him. Stories told on gloomy days, cricket matches played with makeshift bats and plastic balls, talking about his family to the extent where they no longer seemed like strangers in a place miles away from home. To think he would walk away without a hint of a goodbye to an old friend piqued me, and I confessed to having sat on the roof for hours, reminiscing about him and his hundreds of tales. But time is a ruthless taskmaster, and as the months and years rolled by, he faded from memory, with just a handful of moments scattered in the larger consciousness of my past to gauge the impact he had on my life. I grew up, graduated from college, and entered a master's program in a university away from home. It was a very different life there, far removed from the hustle of everyday city dwelling. The university campus was quiet, blanketed in silence on weeknights, with only the drone of cicadas and crickets breaking the austere atmosphere. There were no buses thundering down the streets, and no drunken neighbors yelling at the wind, just calm solitude amidst the pursuit of research and academia. 
I would often walk outside my dorm room, a novel in hand, and read quietly under the university park lights, their incandescence bathing the shrubbery in an almost dreamlike glow, orange among black. My penchant for horror was as prevalent as ever, and when time came to do my thesis, I knew I wanted to do it on something relevant to me, something I could pursue passionately for a year and delve into the most fine-grained details and histories of. It was then, after half a decade, that I recalled my old friend Pahari and his treasure trove of stories about the culture, mythos, and legends of his land. What I had then seen as enthralling, disquieting fun, I now saw differently through a scholar's eyes. I saw a little community full of lore and rites peculiar to them that begged to be explored, to be written about and held up to the world, that merited a deep dive into their very roots to find out the origin of their stories and their customs. It seemed to me to be the only way forward. After all, Bahari was my friend, and I felt like I had a connection to the place. It was as if what I had shared with the man had been set up simply so I could venture into this second act, and maybe in the process, regain a lost kinship. I presented my idea to the supervisors, who needed more than a little persuasion. After all, there was not to prove that this little village could truly hold anything heretofore unseen, save stories I had heard from a single resident a lifetime ago. But I was possessed of a strange determination to do this, and I pushed for the project, even offering to fund it myself. Eventually, the committee relented, agreeing to support it on one condition. I was to stay there for a week and surmise whether there was anything of promise to be gleaned. If that was successful, my thesis would be completely funded. If not, I would come back having wasted neither too much time nor any consequential sum of money. I set out a few weeks later for the village. I always knew the name, and finding out how to get there from the university town I was in was no easy task. It was the middle of summer, and I was facing a 14-hour journey by train and boat. I boarded the train in the early hours of the morning, the skies and unkempt fields rushing by outside, while I leaned against the window and felt the wind brushing my hair backwards, smelling of sweat and pitch and wet grass. The heat was bearable, where the sun hid beneath steely clouds, and the low rumble of thunder rang out with the occasional flash of distant lightning. I got off at the port by noon, and hunted for a ferry, or at least a fisherman's rowboat. The journey by water would take six hours, and I wanted to be in the village as early as I could. It had started raining by then, and the cascading drops left ripples on the river's visage, marking old, hunched-over fishermen sitting by the burning grounds. The wind blew my umbrella around, and I had to weave my way through it, only barely keeping it from being tugged away by a sudden northerly draft. I found a boat that charged a small fortune, and spent the next six hours lying on my back under the tarpaulin roof that covered its aft. The sky turned slowly from grey to blue to a dark red as the rain pattered against the fabric, making little puddles wherever there was a fold or abrasion. I turned my thoughts to what I would do on reaching there. I would, of course, seek out Bahari's family, introducing myself, meet Bahari again if he was still around, and then tell them of why I was there. They were my gateway to understanding the truth of this place. I reached the shores after 6.30. The rain showed no signs of stopping, 
and the humidity was only helped a little by the cool river winds flowing across the jetty. I paid the ferryman and trudged up the muddy path, umbrella all but useless against the turbulence of the downpour. There was no one about, and I saw no traces of electrical lights anywhere. What looked like a broken-down kindergarten school loomed up before me, wide walls covered with colorful paintings of children in books and cartoons. I knocked on the door. Nothing. The wind picked up and I almost immediately regretted having gone there, as it began to dawn on me that the village might be farther down from the shoreline than I had expected. Once I reached there, money would buy me a bed and some basic meals for the night, but if I couldn't make it to the community before 8, they'd likely all be asleep and I would have to spend the night out in the elements. I had my tent in a sleeping bag, but it would be far from ideal. I made slow progress on the wet mud, walking with my foot slightly turned to provide a better grip. The noise of the jungle and its emptiness couldn't quite overtake the patter of rain, but it loomed beside me, lonely and imposing. The path was all but washed away, and I only managed to stick to it by following the clearing through the multiple trees that decked my surroundings. Almost an hour later, I saw the first settlement, a single thatched hut with mud walls popping up against a darkened horizon. There was only a single family about, cooking on the balcony with a coal oven while clear tarpaulin protected the pots from the rain. Two children played inside, wearing shirts that looked about five times too big for them. I approached the woman fanning her cookery flames. She looked up at me in surprise. Hello, I'm looking for Pahari's family? I yelled over the torrent. What? She said, straining to hear me. Pahari's family? I'm a friend of his. She finally seemed to understand. I told her I was from the city and that I knew Pahari for almost a decade. She called out her husband and asked him to talk to me. The man who came outside was well-built and dark with calloused hands and a stained shirt that seemed too small for him. He smelled of sweat and metal and, oddly enough, of sickly sweet honey. The lantern in his hands lit up the little house, and I felt a little chill run down my spine. I didn't understand why, but it was as if a primeval part of me, conditioned to instinctually heed something unfathomable, kicked in and pulled me backwards. Come in, sir. I snapped out of my daze and looked at him. He was pointing to his door. I shut my umbrella and followed him. He heard my story and assured me he'd take me to Pahari's house tomorrow. His wife served me a simple meal of lentils and rice, and I devoured every morsel. They laid out an old mat for me to sleep on, and insisted I sleep inside. I was far too tired to refuse, and laid down, zipping up my sleeping bag, and fell asleep in that tiny room, lit by the light of a dying lantern, throwing long, flickering shadows on the gray, clay-baked walls. That night, for the first time in years, I dreamt of a man in black stood too far away to discern any features, yet just close enough to feel the terror of his presence emanating through me and into my insides, churning and twisting and ripping. I woke up with a start around midnight and looked around, slowly gathering my bearings. The lantern had burned out, and the room was pitch black the sound of rain bombarding the frail wooden door. 
The shapes of the sleeping farmer and his family lay against the wall farthest to me. I looked closely at the door again, trying to understand why the thought of entering this home had suddenly filled me with dread for a second. But there was absolutely nothing. It was a simple wooden door, painted a fading green, with rusted hinges. There was nothing here to scare me the way I had been, yet a sense of unease still gnawed at me. I got up, silently pulled back the deadbolt, and then pulled the door open, to a world of incessant darkness. Gone were the trees, the path, the ground, the rain, and the wind. It was just black nothingness as far as I could see. This house and me were suspended in it, like a rowboat on a perfectly calm ocean on a moonless night. I gasped and gawked and sank to my knees. I slapped myself in the face, pinched my arm, and screamed for the farmer and his wife to wake up. Not a sound from anyone. I stared out and gasped. This had to be a dream. It must be a dream. It had to be a dream. The blackness outside suddenly came alive, seeming multifaceted. Impossible structures and patterns glinted in the dark like diamonds under moonlight. Stairwells that twisted and opened in on themselves, cheating geometry into accursed shapes, materialized out of thin air. Long, thin stairs that disappeared into nothing. Wide ones that looked as if they connected the topmost step to the lowermost in an infinite, incredible loop of sterile, veined marble. And doors. So many doors. Old wooden ones, broken steel ones, warped plastic ones. Red ones, blue ones, green and white ones. A million times, a million doors scattered in that black cocoon like the eyes of some great beast, staring down at me as I knelt at the threshold, mouth agape, tears running down my eyes, abject disbelief and terror having grasped every fiber of my body. And then, at their center, meters from where I stood, another door appeared. This one was old, older it seemed than anything I'd ever known, older than science could surmise. It was sandstone and glass with a single large hinge of brushed metal. It began opening, inwards. A dark clawed hand crept out from behind it, along with a seven-toed foot. The rest of his torso materialized through the door, unnaturally tall, covered in wrinkles from legs upwards. The whole body leaned backwards as it walked out, as if he was walking up a steep hill. As his face slowly phased through the stone, he bent further and further back until his arms, as long as his legs, touched the inky black ground. He crawled towards me, slowly, bent backwards his head just out of view. I cried as I watched him pick up speed, knowing I could do nothing, knowing no law of the mortal plane would serve me now. His fingers and toes grew longer and longer, until it looked as if each of his limbs rested on a massive spider scuttling towards you, swaying, frenetically tilting, the claws at the end of his digits glimmering in whatever foe light existed in that blasted world. I closed my eyes, and the next thing I knew, it was morning, and I was lying on cold hard clay inside the hut. 
There was sunlight streaming in through the windows. I pushed myself up, staggering, almost throwing up over how much my head hurt. My sleeping bag lay crumpled in a corner. I got on my feet. The farmer and his wife were nowhere to be seen. All that remained were the man's stained shirt and a golden ring I remember the woman wearing. Now that I looked closer, it seemed like the stain on the man's shirt was blood. Dry and flaky, but unmistakable. The ring, too, seemed to have traces of dried blood on it. I knelt back and caught my breath against the wall. The door seemed to have a giant scorch mark on the inside, spreading outwards from almost the exact center of the creaking wood. Old damage from a kerosene fire gone wrong, I was sure. I hadn't seen it last night because of the dark. For all I knew, I'd gotten soaked in the rain and had a massive bout of shivers, despite having dried myself off before sleeping. I had definitely hallucinated everything. If there was any other explanation, I would never pursue it, nor accept it. I gathered everything I had and set out. The clouds had let up, the rain had stopped. The sounds of birdsong and the susurrus of winds and waves rose ahead of me, calming me, driving from my mind the nightmares from before. The sun shone on a still muddy but discernible path. I reached the community proper in half an hour, where I inquired at the tiny post office about where I could find some food. They pointed out a place by the local market where laborers gathered to eat. I thanked them and asked after Pahari. Pahari? asked the postman quizzically. Yes, I'm a friend of his. I came to ask for his help over a certain matter. I had to stay over at the farmer and his wife's up half an hour from here last night, but I don't want to waste more time. The man sat down with a huff and put his legs up on the ramshackle wooden table. He pointed at a stool beside the door, and I took a seat. Well, sir, he said gruffly, you are about half a decade too late. I narrowed my eyes at him. Have they left the village? He looked at me for a while, then looked down as if unsure. When he finally spoke, it was with measured gravity. Yes, they did, but I can't tell you where they went. You see, Bahari had a daughter. I'm sure you must have seen pictures of her. One day, when he was away in the city, she came to her mother saying she had a stomachache, a really bad one. When she was taken to the village nurse and got to know what had happened, her mother traveled three hours by boat to the nearest island with a phone line so she could let Bahari know. He came back that very night. I realized with a jolt that this must have been the day when he'd left our neighborhood for good, throwing away his friendships and job. The day he left mid-shift and caught the earliest train home, taking his blue tarpaulin with him. What had happened to his daughter? Visions of the precocious little girl popped in my head, from when he would show me her black and white photos and of his few cherished possessions. She would have been eleven when he left maybe less. Well, sir, she was pregnant. I choked on my own spit and gasped for air. The world around me seemed thick and heavy. The birdsong had ceased to be replaced by a distant metallic screeching, 
as if someone was pushing aside a rusty, collapsible gate from far away. We didn't know who did it at first. She wouldn't tell us. But Bahari didn't need her to say it. He knew. That night, he invited his nephew to spend the night with him and his family at the clinic, to keep watch over her because he trusted him, he said. When morning came by, the locals found the clinic on fire. The family was safe, having escaped just in time, apparently, but the nephew was never found. There was no body, no charred remains. All they found of him was a chipped nail tucked away neatly on the clinic chair he'd slept on, miraculously untouched. The police never found evidence of anything having gone wrong. The family claimed to have not noticed anything until the fire started, except the daughter. He furrowed his brow. She spoke of something coming inside in the dark, something that was bent over the wrong way. Her words, not mine. We never got more out of her because she claimed she passed out before that. The next day, the entire family left, and they've never come back. As he stopped, he drew in a deep breath and closed his eyes. The stifling tension in the room seemed to let up a tithe, and I put my head between my hands. This was difficult to process. I imagined Pahari's smiling visage, his pride over his daughter and her prowess at hide-and-seek, his sudden departure, and the terror he must have felt as his world slowly crumbled around him with no warning, no heed to the lives it was going to destroy. He would have taken the boat across the river, paying out from his meager salary, the subtle beauty of the tepid river blanketed by an ocean of despair and horror, anger and vengeance. He was a father, and the pivot of his entire existence had been torn to pieces, thrown into the wind like chattel. The postman cleared his throat, bringing me back. Also, sir, the only one who lives up that path is an old man. There are no farmlands there, and no farmers or farmers' wives. If you say you spent your night there with the people you say you did, I believe you may be talking about someplace else. But either way, I would caution against going that way late at night. Why's that? I asked. There's a family of honey gatherers from across the border that have been spotted up there, and they're a bloody lot. They'll sooner kill you in your sleep if they think you have coin, than make you a meal. I bent over and threw up. The world spun and tilted and collapsed in on itself, and I passed out. I dreamt of him again, inching out of the door, scuttling towards me, his talons gleaming, ready to rip and shred and take me away to his own world, where he could have his way with me. When I came to, it was evening. The sound of crows and storks resounded in the distance, preparing their perches for a long night. Glowworms were floating outside my window, pinpricks of yellow and white that appeared and disappeared of their own accord. The air seemed cooler. I was in a brightly lit room on a clean white bed with the smell of mosquito repellent permeating the air. I gathered that it was probably lit by a generator, given that outside my window I could only see lanterns and wick lamps. This must be their clinic, I thought, probably built on the foundations of the old one that burned down. 
There were definitely patches that looked like they weren't replaced and had instead been reused from the burnt building to cut down on costs. The window frame was far older than the walls or paint were, and covered in darkened patches where they had been scorched. The little white table was steel but bore burn marks on its legs. Even the door itself had a large scorch mark emanating from the center and downwards. I paused. It was as if someone had plunged me into an ice bath and was holding me down, refusing me a single breath of fresh air. The hair on the back of my neck stood straight as the pieces slowly came together in my clouded mind. That day, I ran faster than I'd ever run before. I left all I had, save for the clothes on my body and the purse in my pocket. I woke up an oarsman sleeping near his boat and paid him ten times the normal fare to take me away from there as fast as he could. We made the six-hour journey in four. I got onto the first train I found going my way and got on. My heart raced me the entire way back. I reached university in the wee hours of the morning, panting, spent and exhausted beyond measure, and slept for a day and a half. Then, I told the supervisor that the project was a bust and I looked forward to working on something more theoretical, as I felt that was more to my taste. I assume he must have noticed how bedraggled and inhumanly tired I looked, because he sent me working on something I would never have to set foot outside the university campus for. As the months passed by, I began to finally confront what had happened. The puzzle assembled itself before me with astonishing clarity, something I sorely needed to move past the events of that night. It needed me to summon a certain suspension of disbelief, for the missing pieces were nothing if not supernatural. You see, I believe the doorman was real. He was something, as Bahari said, that existed in a realm devoid of the laws of mortal science. He was insurmountable and to look upon him for too long was to lose consciousness, for the human mind can only decipher that for which it has context, a frame of reference. The doorman was not bound by mortal laws, therefore trying to comprehend what he truly is, as is impossible, as say, making a submarine out of holes. But the only thing that tethered him to our world was why he did what he did, why he lived in the shadow of doors, and why he attacked. That was what Pahari, through some chance of fate, had figured out, because the doorman, in fact, only came for those who caused misfortune, not those who received it. Which is how Pahari knew that he would come for his nephew, because the absolute truth of this world is the only thing of consequence to this otherworldly being, which is why he came for the murderers I had the ill fortune to spend the night with, and... Even more importantly, I believe you'd have to know of and think about the doorman to draw him in, just as I was when I entered that house. Why am I writing this now? Well, simply because I now have the form to, and because there are far too many in the world who deserve a fate worse than the one they've been dealt. Because if there's a witness to a crime, there is a way to exact justice without relying on the machinations of a broken world and its broken systems. Because there might be something behind your door, and there are those, I believe, who should fear it.
Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers.